The complexity of patient care in a hospital setting rises each year. OHSU academic and clinical nursing leaders are working together to make sure the nursing workforce in Oregon is ready to meet those needs. It's Tuesday, November 14th, and this is OHSU Week. I'm Kelsey Hewell. In part two of this nursing series, Patrick Holmes continued his conversation with Susan Bakewell-Sachs, Dean of the School of Nursing and Vice President for Nursing Affairs, as well as Dana Bjornsson, Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer of OHSU Healthcare and Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs in the School of Nursing. Dana, I'm always, I work a lot with the hospital, work a lot with your team, and um, I always am amazed by how many nurses, <laughs> beyond the nurses that are at the bedside, how many nurses are running the hospital. It seems nurses are really play a role in all aspects of the hospital. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, what are kind of some of those career opportunities that nurses go on to? Oh, my goodness. You know, I actually um, have the rich opportunity to do a class about two or three times a year over at the School of Nursing. It's kind of based in moral leadership in nursing. But one of the things I emphasize with the students is the amazing opportunities that they have now. And what's key is the baccalaureate degree is the gateway to getting a master's degree. And you can get a master's degree in education. You can get a master's degree in leadership. You can get a master's degree in informatics. You can get a master's degree in nursing in just about anything. And then you can go on and get a doctorate um, in the same way, a doctorate in education, a doctorate in leadership. You can get a PhD and be a nurse researcher. So there are just the, the uh, opportunities are boundless. And I think when, you know, a little bit more directly to answer your question is, you know, patients are in the hospital because they need nursing care. They need 24-7 nursing care. Uh, And so we need not only direct care providers who have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to take care of them, but we need innovative and um, inspiring nurse leaders to be able to uh, continue to change the uh, dynamic nature of the work and the workforce to meet the patient care needs. The complexity of the patients in our hospital these days is absolutely astounding. I joke with the students when I meet, talk with them, and I said when I was uh, first out of nursing school, my documentation for some of my patients was up and about, walking in the halls, uh, wearing slippers in a house coat. That is something you rarely see in our hospitals now. And so it is just, it's really astounding, the complexity of the care of the patients. And and we need people who can negotiate that care. And we need people who can, can negotiate with the interprofessional team. We need people who understand the importance of collaboration and communication and how we continue to do what is the most important thing that our patients and our patients' families expect from us, and that is to keep them safe and help them to achieve the highest quality outcome that they can, even even if that high quality outcome is a peaceful death. Why is it that the complexity has gotten um, so much greater? Is it because we're do a better job of handling more minor things in an outpatient setting? Or is it because we're maybe better, more advanced at our medicine and are able to help people live longer in a more 
advanced stage of a disease? Yeah, you actually got, I think, both of those things um, right. Um, certainly, we have been able to drive a lot of care to the ambulatory setting, which is the right thing to do. Hospitals are not safe places. The longer you're in the hospital, the more likely something bad is to happen to you. And so patients who used to come in to get prepped for surgery now do their preparation before they get to the hospital. And then sometimes they don't even have to stay in the hospital after their procedure. But interestingly, I mean, it's been during my lifetime that ICUs came into being. And, you know, at first they were just an ICU, and now we have a medical ICU and a trauma surgical ICU and a cardiovascular ICU and, you know, a neonatal ICU, a pediatric ICU. The uh, technology and the ability for us to use technology to understand what is going on with our patients has just led to amazing developments. The medications, the pharmaceuticals that we are able to give to patients to sustain them when they have uh, aspects of their uh, body that needs to sustainment has just grown astronomically. Um, the medications that are being given now are not ones that I was giving when I was practicing, and that wasn't quite so long ago. So it's, yeah, it's a, a bit of both. Um, and again, you know, I think you see this uh, just amazing advancement of science. And we see it certainly all the time at OHSU, because in addition to having, you know, wonderful school of nursing, we also have amazing research that goes on not only in the school of nursing, but in the school of medicine that advances the health of not only our community and our region, but nationally and internationally as well. Susan, how has uh, nursing education changed since you were going to nursing school yourself? It has changed in a a number of ways. Um, One of the, uh, and and some of that has to do with the pedagogies and and what we have in terms of supporting the the learning of students. Um, A major aspect of that is simulation. Uh, when I went to uh, undergraduate, and I'm not ancient, but um, it's been several decades, um, we, uh, our practice, uh, sometimes, I mean, we, we gave each other injections, we practiced on oranges, we, um, so there was a very, um, uh, there were, we had opportunities to practice, um, and there was innovation that came with that, but nothing like what we have now. Um, when, when high fidelity simulation came into, uh, uh, into the realm of education, we really saw it immediately as an opportunity to enhance our, um, um, uh, situational um, education opportunities. So we can create pretty much any scenario. Uh, we can do that through role playing and what we call low fidelity, where um, someone is um, is a patient, a, a live patient, and maybe a standardized patient, and and helping that student really in a in a common uh, theme, really learn specifics and demonstrate what they know and can do. And then we have high fidelity. Um, uh, mannequins that again allow us to um, simulate a variety of scenarios. We learn. We used we use simulation now to to teach initially. We use it to help assess um, a students' uh, competency, and we also use it to um, enhance deepening and and high level knowledge um, for very special skills. So simulation is one of those things that that made a lot of difference. Um, the um, the expansion of science. Um, there is a lot more behind. We don't try to teach 
all the tasks anymore. We really focus on I, the, the, the example that I, that I often use because it's just so classic was when I was in college, we all had to be able to, in, to do certain things that were on a checklist. And doing those things was, um, was just very, very important. Now, what's actually more important is knowing why and when you do those things. And so the knowledge behind what is happening with this individual before me, what is the, what is the monitoring tell me, um, what are the subtle signs that I am, am watching for here, and how do I need to intervene, and when, is really what we're much more focused on now. Don't get me wrong. Skills are still important, and we and we teach skills, uh, but uh, but but the, that knowledge base is extremely. Nurses are knowledge professionals. That's what's most important. We also know how um, all of the mobile devices and um, access to knowledge has dramatically changed how we how we educate. We're teaching students. You know, content very quickly becomes outdated, but how to how to find information, um, how to access that, how to again how to make, how to clinically reason, how to make decisions. Um, that's really the strong focus, stronger focus now of, um, of, what, of what our education process is. There's one other thing that I think is different, um, and that is the uh, we continue to infuse interprofessionalism into. Thank you, the Dana. Curriculum. I meant to say that and forgot. Thank yeah. you. Uh, real important. We recognize, you know, that we got far too siloed, and we were expecting, you know, pharmacists and nurses and physicians to come together right out of their various schools and start performing as a team, and so we thought, hey, shouldn't we be putting them together before they actually graduate so they get to know each other, so they get to talk, so they learn how to talk each other's languages? Because we all talk very different languages. And so I think that has been a big, uh, big asset for us. And it's one that has to continue to grow. Uh, we have to continue to grow it after the uh, students graduate and come into the uh, clinical settings as well, because it, it becomes very difficult to bring people together, but it's essential. We're all doing and uh, focused on the same outcomes. We need to be doing it together. You're talking about uh, interprofessional education, and I, the term professional um, is something that I hear you and others talk about a lot. Can you talk about what that kind of means to be a professional in, in, in nursing practice? Sure. I think uh, Susan really alluded to the most important piece of it. It's about the level of knowledge that you have and how you turn that knowledge into um, adequately and more than adequately, expertly performing the skills that you perform uh, and the way that you think and make decisions is incredibly important. And I was having a conversation yesterday with one of our nurses who was talking about how important it is for her to be able to make decisions at the point of care. And I, I was just applauding it because I'm often asked to make point of care decisions I haven't been at the point of care since 1993. I shouldn't be making point of care decisions. I need to be making strategic decisions. And again, that's part of this whole professional continuum of how you start to um, do that. The other thing that I think is a huge piece of professionalism is your, um, is your presence and how you present yourself, how you articulate, how you communicate. 
It's one of the reasons I've been really happy with a program that we've been introducing for the past year or so at OHSU. It came out of our Professional Development Council, and it was a plan for us to use an acronym to help people communicate when there was a chance that you might lose your professionalism because you were stressed or you were in conflict or you were angry. And it's called ARC. It's ask a question, make a request, um, voice your concern. And if you are still stymied and feel like you can't keep the patient safe or that you can't resolve the conflict or the issue that is at hand, use the chain of resolution to find someone who can help you because there always is someone who can help you solve a problem when the problem is beyond your scope, beyond your authority, your responsibility, or even just your uh, your ability to speak up and have the courage to do what needs to be done. You'll always find someone who has the right amount of courage. What's the chain of resolution? The chain of resolution actually starts at the lowest level. So it uh, is where the engagement occurs when you voice the concern. And that is when you would tell a person, uh, well, Patrick, thanks, um, but I still have a concern about that. I think I need to go and talk to Susan. And so, you know, Patrick might say, well, how about we go talk to Susan together? That's ideal. Um, or Patrick might say, you know, um, well, hey, maybe, maybe I could see it your way. Let's talk a little bit more. Or you might say, fine, go ahead. That suits me. And so I might then go and talk to Susan and Susan will maybe agree with me. If so, she has the authority to move forward in, a, in another way. Um, or she may say, you know, Dana, you're kind of not right in this case, and I agree with Patrick. So it, it just keeps the conversation cool. It keeps it directed. It keeps it at an um, unemotional level because you're just being honest about where you stand and how you see things. It's not about right or wrong. It's just about having a concern, voicing it, and trying to get other eyes on the situation if you need them so that we can do what is ultimately our goal, safe, quality care. So we've talked a lot about how, uh, you know, over the last three and a half years, the projects that the two of you have been working on, what are some examples of where you've seen this kind of play out, maybe some of the more proud moments where you've seen kind of this work um, be placed into practice? Well, there are a lot of examples of how the School of Nursing and the health system work closely together. And we have, um, we have students strongly engaged in that. We have faculty strongly engaged in that. Um, I, one that really stands out to me um, was when uh, in looking at the transition to first uh, employment uh, project, and I'm probably not going to quite get that title right, so Dana can can uh, uh, make it more accurate, um, but I'll I'll get it described. Uh, and this was uh, this is a, a very important process of you know we are trying to. Um, prepare students to be practice ready, and then they transition uh, into uh, into their prof first professional role. Um, and in nursing, we've talked a lot about the gap that exists between uh, between that. And so here we had the opportunity for um, a significant uh, focus on how um, we transition, um, and there was a focus on orientation and bringing the onboarding process on the on the hospital side, and how we're success successfully recruiting, transitioning, and retaining um, uh, those nurses. Uh, faculty were included in that work because one of the things we were very interested in is what are we looking at 
how does that compare with what the hospital is looking at and what's working well and, and what can we learn from one another? And so this was, this was an, uh, one of the first things that I really remember saying, wow, this is, this is great collaboration um, here. Um, Dana uh, and I have also had the opportunity to bring each other in. Uh, and um, one uh, current example that we're working together um, on is the Care Coordination Task Force, which Dana chairs. Um, and she um, invited me uh, to be part of that. Uh, we also have um, our program director here uh, at uh, Portland, uh, Ann Nielsen, and uh, Peggy Ross, who is uh, one of our senior associate deans and who is very involved in an interprofessional practice project called the Interprofessional Care Access Network. Connecting all of that as one as elements of this much larger picture, but bringing everyone around, um, literally around a table, working collaboratively to figure out how we're going to do uh, the best by our um, our patients here in our system to coordinate their care, to have it be um, uh, continuous so that there aren't gaps, et cetera. Um, and again, linking the education practice and various programs that um, that we have, uh, the bringing that that common wisdom and um, and diverse perspectives together uh, to really work on that. Those are those are just two examples that I can think of. Sure. And we were just talking about the immersion program <laughs> yesterday, um, and how important it has been to us in terms of having students who are prepared to um, hit the ground running when they graduate because they have spent their senior leadership practicum on one of our inpatient units working with a nurse preceptor who is also a mentor to them. So it has been a, an amazing program. We want to continue to build it and grow it, um, particularly because of the fact that right now uh, recruiting experienced nurses is very difficult and challenging for us. We are finding that more and more we rely on new graduate nurses and in fact over the past two years we've moved from a five percent of our nursing team prepared uh, with less than uh, two years experience to 11% of our nursing team that has two years experience. So this opportunity to have people who really know the clinical work is uh, ever more important to us. I'd like to just talk a little bit more about the care coordination program because uh, uh, Susan kind of leapt in at the work that we started about a year ago, but that work actually started a couple of years before that when we started looking at care coordination in the curriculum at the school. And uh, then a couple of key people who were involved in that program left, and it was sort of floundering, and Susan and I were wondering what to do. And then Susan got this brilliant idea for us to send 10 people, five from the School of Nursing and five from the clinical area, to become certified in care coordination. So over the course of the year, they took the care coordination uh, course, and that just created a huge bond between people who were interested in transitions in care, which is the most important part of care nowadays. If we get transitions in care right, we reduce hospitalizations, we reduce complications, we manage chronic diseases better than we ever can. 
And so that was what led to us forming the steering committee, which has just been one of the most exciting uh, committees that I've been on. In fact, uh, shortly after we started meeting, I had people calling me and saying, can I be on the committee, which has never happened to me in my life before. And at one particular meeting, we actually had standing room only. And I was just like, obviously, we have hit a chord. We have gotten on something that people are interested in. So it's been some amazing work. And we're actually now looking at a research project that we might be able to get out of this work, which would be really, really exciting. Some some uh, literature and some evidence for how best to do this work. We'll have the final interview with Drs. Bakewell Sachs and Bjarnson in the coming weeks. Also last week, three OHSU experts shared their perspective and research on how to solve the opioid crisis at the 2017 OHSU Illuminate Luncheon. We have a tremendous hill to climb in addiction and treatment. So we want to focus our conversation today on addiction treatment, and I'll pick on Dr. Englander first. What are we doing right and what are we doing wrong with treatment so far? I think there's, just as you say, there are huge opportunities to expand treatment, um, but there really are also some highlights or areas uh, both at OHSU and across our communities where treatment is happening, and treatment is happening at its best, in my opinion, when it includes choice for, for patients, when it's patient-centered, meaning that it has providers that understand the disease of addiction, um, that it's located in settings that are what patients want, be that an opioid treatment program, be that in primary care settings, in community settings. Um, I think the incorporation of peers who have lived experience in recovery is a really vital part of treatment, and more and more, certainly on our team, they're an essential part of what we do, and I know that their role is expanding across the state, and that's so important. I saw a young man yesterday in clinic who I had met in the hospital after a motor vehicle accident uh, in the setting of his heroin use. He did not come to the hospital looking for addictions treatment. But that moment is such a reachable moment because it, because it interrupts people's drug use and because the fear of death is, is so motivating. And it, it, there's something special about that moment. So to have a team at the ready that's an interprofessional team, including physicians, social workers, peers, who can meet someone, start them on medication for addiction if that's what they want and need, and then bridge them to care in the community. We partner with Central City Concern and CODA and really a whole network of providers across the state to be able to support a streamlined path to care. That leverages something very special and important. So it sounds like what you're discovering is at the hospital setting as well as at the primary care setting, the more we integrate opportunities for addiction treatment into healthcare more broadly. Uh, Dr. Capio, I've heard you, much more on Capio, I've heard you talk about providing people an infrastructure to be whole again. I love that. Can you uh, explain a little bit about what you mean by that? If I've got it wrong, tell me. Uh, sure, I'd never tell you you're wrong. Just, <laughs> we're gonna revise some things. <laughs> this is not the first time in history we faced this issue. I'd like to go back all the way to 1960s, 1970s, where heroin actually was, and heroin is an opioid, heroin was an issue in communities of color. Actually, predominantly, dem the demographic that was impacted were males who were people of color uh, in urban areas. And at that time, uh, it was sort of dealt with in a different way. We would say there was more of a public health frame. In the late 60s, early 70s, Nixon decided that he wanted to get a bill together to appropriate funds to treat what he called at the time the opioid crisis. 
So at that time, there was about $370 million appropriated for treatment on one end, and then, then on the other end, there was uh, an opportunity for what he called enforcement. Disproportionately, people of color were impacted by the enforcement end and placed in jail. Now, I'd like to fast forward to the 1990s where prescription opioids increased, um, and, and there was a concomitant increase, but the demographics switched. So we go from mainly urban, African-American and people of color, males in urban area, the demographic then shifts from the 1990 to current to more affluent, uh, white, male, female, uh, suburban, rural, and then the dynamic shifts a bit, right? Because I believe that history should serve as our best teacher. And, and in that, we should learn some very important lessons about what was effective policy and what was not effective policy. So at that time, back in the 70s when there was a different demographic disproportionately impacted by the opioid crisis, uh, it was a public safety issue. But as we fast forward today, what we see, and I'm glad that many of you are in the room, it has been deemed a public health issue because disproportionately we've seen a number, a different demographic now transition to heroin when prescription opioids was their initiating impact. Everyone wants to, as soon as we see a crisis, we want to be able to point to, it's our human proclivity, what happened? Who did it? Why? And it's very easy to point to pharma, because that's the easy, low-hanging fruit. But again, I'll submit to you that it's much deeper than that. And if history bears witness to what hasn't worked, I think we've got an opportunity here to think about what could. Dr. McCarty, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the uh, central role OHSU has played with research into emerging drugs and emerging drugs to treat addiction? I'd be glad to. That's my role at the School of, in the School of Public Health is to test new therapies. I have three types of research, clinical trials, quality improvement, and policy. First, with the clinical trials, I'm, OHSU is one of 20 universities participating in the National Drug Abuse Treatment Clinical Trials Network, CTN for short. We've tested emerging agonist therapies. Um, in contrast to methadone, which has been the primary medication to treat opioid use disorders. Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist. We conducted the first trial before it was approved by the FDA for treatment of opioid use disorder, and we saw, saw that it was safe, it was effective. Uh, we partnered with Kaiser to conduct that particular trial, and uh, we, sh we showed that community-based programs could, could use this medication quite safely. Next, we tested buprenorphine in the context of especially treating prescription opioid drug abuse. These were patients, we recruited patients who wanted to stop prescription opioid use. Four years after we tested them, four years after we treated them with buprenorphine, 30% were opioid free and not using illicit drugs. Another 30% were remained on agonist therapy, but were no longer had the criteria of opioid dependence or addiction. And 40% continued to use illicit opioids. Opioid use disorder is very difficult to, to, to recover from. Uh, relapse rates, return to use rates are very, are very high. So you need long-term treatment. It needs to be chronic care. We're also testing extended-release naltrexone. This is a medication that's an opioid antagonist. It blocks the effects of the opioid. Uh, we're just starting a, a, a seven-site clinical trial all over the U.S., uh, testing this within the context of HIV primary care. 
And this is an effective tool. It's, we expect it to improve HIV outcomes because patients are no longer using opioids. The next type of research I do is uh, quality of care. I'm looking at um, how do you improve the quality of care for alcohol and drug use disorders, and the use of pharmacotherapy is an essential ingredient. It is underutilized. In Oregon, only 5% of the patients enrolled in Medicaid with an alcohol use disorder are receiving a medication to support their recovery. It should be much higher. And so we've been doing studies to increase the use of medications for alcohol and opioid use disorders. We just completed a clinical trial. We're at baseline, 10% of the patients were receiving uh, a medication to treat their alcohol or opioid use disorder, and three years later, it was 35%. So substantial increase, and we showed that, again, programs can use these medications safely and effectively. Finally, I do policy studies. I look at what, how are policies affecting uh, this disorder. Let's talk about stigma a little bit more, because I think the overwhelming impact of stigma in this field is unlike anything I know in any other public policy challenge. Um, I have met way too many mothers uh, and other family members who lost children to the opioid crisis. In 201, they tell me it was stigma that killed my child because it made it impossible for the child to embrace treatment. So how do we tear down that wall of stigma that keeps us from treating addiction like the brain disease that it is? Well, I think we're mincing words here. I'm not sure that the description that you gave is actually stigma. I think that there are real access issues, that there are real workforce issues, that what we want, you mentioned earlier about having access to, you know, having accessible, affordable care. I would add to that quality care, that this is an issue that requires uh, folks to be trained and to have a skill set in order to work in this particular, within this particular population effectively. And we do have a workforce issue. Um, there is a huge workforce issue that I think, think has that, to be addressed. Don't you think that's driven by stigma? Well, I, had a, but, I had a doctor say to me, well, you reimbursed well, addiction at well, the finish, rate, same rate well, you reimbursed with the predicts. Well, let me finish answering the question. So, in my response to you is, is that we're still talking about two different issues. I think that people tend to fear what they do not understand between the person standing in front of them and what, what types of skill sets they believe they have in order to be helpful. I will tell you that good faith effort, everyone that I work with wants to do a good job and optimally serve the patient in front of them. In many cases, it is an option, it is the, it is the lack of of sometimes skill set, tools, and availability to have those things. So I, wanted, I, I want the public to know that everyone is concerned about this. And I think that in many cases, stigma exists, but there really is this, this, this lack of understanding and also lack of skills and training. And I think that we're working to fill that. I'm going to provide a little bit of a, a counter uh, yeah, point to that, which is I think that there is structural stigma around this disease. Right. And the fact that until July of 2015, we didn't have addiction services in the hospital at OHSU. Had we had people dying of cardiac disease at the rate that they were dying of addiction, we would have had a service sooner. This is structural stigma, and this is affecting, and I, I, I do believe that it is, it is partly because of that discriminatory uh, belief about this disease. I also think that treatment changes culture, that when we start somebody on treatment and that they improve, it dramatic, we've seen this time and time again. Uh, it, it changes how people view the disease and, of addiction. And you've seen it in the hospital, right, with your colleagues, because you've told me about this. Yeah. 
I think that's really exciting. It's a phenomenal thing to see. And, and so the understanding of the disease changes when you have the right tools in place, when you have the right teams. There's that right word understanding, though. What, Again, that understanding. But I believe that a, a major lever to change and uh, to changing that understanding is through treatment. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, I really do. I, I also think that there are Massachusetts is a great example. They have a whole campaign, the Stop Stigma, with a capital M A at the end in Massachusetts, and they have a, they have public health campaigns to talk about how stigma interferes with people accessing treatment. The addiction treatment system, as it exists, is outside of healthcare broadly. There is our freestanding, separately licensed, separately operated drug and alcohol treatment programs. There's 14,000 of them in the U.S. Most of them are small. They treat fewer than 40 patients. They often do not have physicians on staff. And so you've got a lot of those historical barriers. Oh, and by the way, they're underfinanced. We're trying to buy a very important treatment at very cheap prices. And as a result, you end up with people who aren't very good at it. Well, thanks to each of you. It's been an honor to be up here with you today. More broadly, it's been an honor to work with you on this issue in recent years. And I appreciate your thoughtful input. Thank you very, very much. OHSU Week is a production of Strategic Communications. This episode was produced by Christy Richardson Sobralski and Patrick Holmes. It was edited by Josh Anderson. I'm Kelsey Hewalt. Patrick will be back next week. <laughs>